I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's James Jacobs, and we're talking about a kind of work that almost every composer has tried writing, the concerto. We talk about its origins and humble beginnings, its development through Mozart, and the star-studded height of its fame in the Romantic period of the 19th century. Also, stay with us to the end to find out which instrument in the orchestra was the last to get a concerto. I like to imagine James and think back to when certain things were invented. You know, what was it like? What was the process? And thinking about the concerto, I imagine hundreds of years ago, there was a group of musicians. They perform together and play, you know, and... They get together for a rehearsal, and one of the musicians pulls out some new music and says, hey, I got a new piece here. Let's read through it. And they start playing it, and some of the other musicians start looking at each other, and they stop, and it's like, well, what is, wait a second, why is your part so much cooler than ours? And why are you sitting in front of us? Do you think you're better than us? I feel like there was some kind of argument maybe at the beginning here with the first concerto. I think so. Well, of course, you can all there's also solos in church choir, right? And there's, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, why does, you know, in Shakespeare's time, why does Hamlet get 4,000 lines and we get two? You know, it's... Um, That's a good point. Yeah, it's, uh, there's always that sense of, uh, of, there's always hierarchy. You know, one guy has always got to just keep on going, you know, and while well, the rest of the people just play the whole notes. Yeah, I don't know. So... I think we're all familiar with the idea of a concerto. Often we say that and we think of a big orchestra and a star violinist at the front of the stage. But the concerto has more humble beginnings, doesn't it? I'm thinking of in the Baroque period in like the 1600s with these early concertos, for instance, by Giuseppe Torelli, many of them for the trumpet. They're fantastic. And the trumpet was used because... It was able to project more and fill a bigger space as a soloist, but these are like five, six minutes long sometimes. The solo part isn't some big developed statement or anything like that. It had a very, very humble beginning. Yeah, and I think if an instrument plays by itself, it sounds kind of lonely. Whereas if an instrument plays accompanied by a few people where there's, a, as we were talking about, a definite hierarchy of of what's important, but the other instruments create this sort of sonic backdrop to make that one person really shine, then, uh, then well, that's exciting for the listener and it's very gratifying for that one star uh, soloist. And as we have discussed, it also creates lots of envy in all those other musicians. So the concerto is, you know, it's blossoming, it's coming to fruition, and one big composer, right, to really push it forward was Antonio Vivaldi. He lived from 1678 to 1741, and he wrote hundreds of concertos, hundreds for the violin, also for bassoon and for the lute, and several pretty impressive ones for the oboe. And I feel like with these, it's a good example when you hear it. You have a very clear definition between the soloist and the accompaniment, and the soloist is a bit more involved than some of those early Torelli concertos. Now, Vivaldi was a very prolific composer, and one of the things that he wrote most of, actually, was operas. I mean, that's how that's really what how he made his bread and butter was writing operas. That's how everybody did in the early 18th century. And so, what Vivaldi did was transfer that same sense of event that you heard from hearing a really great singer sing an aria to hearing a really great instrumentalist hearing a concerto. 
and uh, and he and so as a result, he wrote over 200 uh, concertos just for the violin, which was his own instrument. But what was really extraordinary is how he put shine on all these other instruments, uh, including the oboe, which is probably at the time that I would say the second most important orchestral instrument after the violin in terms of what really carried the melody. And I like that point about operas because there's that dramaticism on stage, and Vivaldi is bringing it to more economical means, one of a few musicians, but also more available to many people where if you have a big production as opposed to a concert with a couple of concertos, he's bringing that dramaticism from the stage into this smaller format. Oh, absolutely. It's basically like an opera in 10 minutes. I mean, you have one, you know, you have this dramatic buildup by the orchestra and then the soloist comes in and there's, you know, and the soloist you know, shows off, you know, plays the melody and then shows off certain, you know, all this technical uh, virtuosity around that melody. And then there's a poignant slow movement in which, you know, you have an emotional moment and uh, and lyricism and then a dance-like finale. So you get this whole world in about 10 minutes, all, you know, plus you you know, get to admire, you know, like being at the Olympics, you get to admire the athleticism and virtuosity of the soloist. Um, and uh, it's it, it's got everything. Intent, it's, it's just this great self-contained entertainment. And Vivaldi knew they had a good thing when he stumbled onto it because he wrote over 500 concertos. And we also have in the Baroque period something called a concerto grosso. So what is the difference between a concerto and a concerto grosso. Well, the concerto grosso came first and was actually a sort of outgrowth of the idea of having contrasting choirs uh, that you would have, you know, and they would contrast in terms of textures. And so you would have a little trio of two violins and a cello as opposed to a string orchestra of a dozen people. And so you'd hear this interplay between these two these two textures, and that's what created the interest in drama was in, you know, when you had this sort of dialogue uh, between these two groups of instruments. And when I listen to the some of the early Concerti Grossi, sometimes it's more about, yeah, you're saying that, that call and response you hear in your, in your left earphone, you hear one choir, and then in the right you hear the other. And sometimes the instruments you listen, it's kind of like, well, it kind of it's kind of hard to differentiate between uh, some of these because they sound similar, but Johann Sebastian Bach and his Brandenburg Concertos, I love these because the soloists are very, very different. Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5, for instance, has harpsichord and violin and flute, very different sounding instruments as the soloists, and it's kind of like, it seems like a game of catch, passing one solo line to the next and to the next. Yeah, Bach took the Concerto Grosso concept to this completely different plane, and perhaps... Most remarkably, in the fifth Brandenburg Concerto, we came up with the idea of having a solo harpsichord. And up to this point, the harpsichord, you know, was just the continual instrument, was just the accompaniment, uh, was just part of the texture uh, that uh, let the other instruments shine. And so, he came, but he came up with this very ingenious way of of showcasing of of altering the texture so that the harpsichord itself could also be a solo instrument. And the harpsichord in this concerto specifically has this incredible cadenza. And this seems also like an early time for cadenzas. As we'll see later on, they kind of become more standardized, how you get into them and how you get out of them. But 
What is happening here with the cadenza? It's Is it basically just everyone stops and then the soloist takes over and does their thing, kind of showing off, and then everyone comes back in at the end? Well, first of all, before this, cadenzas existed in vocal music. They existed in arias. And Vivaldi kind of experimented with that in his violin concertos, but in terms of having this sort of formal uh, place where the orchestra stops and then the solo instrument takes over with this incredible flight of fancy and then with a little bit of a trill, you know, comes back into the Ripieno. Um, Bach invented that in the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5. This is such a groundbreaking work in so many ways. And, you can, and the way that he builds up the expectation is that at first the harpsichord doesn't even have the melody. It just gets more and more animated. Uh, while, while the flute and violin and and orchestra have, have the melody, and just it's just it just gets it, it becomes busier and busier, and one by one the other instruments drop out, and then it has this absolutely incredible cadenza that must have had the force of, say, you know, Jimi Hendrix playing guitar solo. Um, it's like it's so absolutely iconic and groundbreaking and. Um, and you sort of say, you know, talk about, you know, it's basically harpsichord hero at this point. And I can imagine with this cadenza, this moment for the soloist to shine and having something like this so incredible, it's easy to see why it would catch on after this cadenza's being in, in so many concertos, in most concertos, because, I mean, at the end, the audience would have just gone wild. And basically the entire rest of the 18th century takes Bach up on this challenge. And um, concerto, even more than the symphony, even more than really any other instrumental form, is what drives the development of orchestral music. And speaking of the 18th century, as we get into the mid-1700s, thinking of the classical period, we start to get concertos that sound more familiar, I think because things become more standardized, a standard kind of set of uh, musicians in an orchestra, and a lot of these are still played today before we're having, you know, six, seven-minute concertos to some bigger ones by Bach to now being pretty substantial works. And a great one, I think, to, to think about is Haydn's Cello Concerto Number 1, especially here as we see the cadenza form becoming more standardized because cadenza and cadence, that's another word we can learn about, those are very similar words, and I think that's on purpose, right? Yeah, a cadence is, I'm creating a cadence in my voice. I, I come to the end, and but I come to the, there's a little bit of anticipation. Am I going to end? Am I going to just keep on going? Am I going to go into verbal flights of fancy before I finally come to the end? Yes, and that's, that's, it's a rhetorical device that comes not only from opera, but also from oratory, you know, uh, Ministers do this, you know, preachers do this. It's, uh, and composers uh, understood this and that this created the drama for that one superstar instrumentalist to really shine. And the cadence getting into the cadenza is, as you, as you were just demonstrating, it's open-ended. It's kind of, you know, it's not finished. And then, of course, the, the soloist comes into the spotlight. Towards the end of the cadenza, 
is something that Bach did very, very quickly, kind of just flies by in the fifth Brandenburg Concerto, and that is having a trill. It's kind of this, um, it adds suspension to the music, and it's this trill, which is basically two notes going back and forth uh, between each other very quickly, that then leads into the downbeat with the orchestra coming back in. And that's in, I mean, that's almost universal in these concertos for this century and even the next, where you have this trill. So when you're at a concert, you'll see soloists is doing their thing, and then they go higher and higher and higher and higher, and they do this nice little trill, and that's when you'll see a lot of musicians, they'll pick their instruments back up because they're about to come back in. Another big concerto from this time period, of course, Mozart wrote so many concertos. A big one, and I think a good one to demonstrate another idea, is his clarinet concerto. Of course, it's just, I mean, it's beautiful. And it also, I think, really clearly demonstrates the idea of what we call ritornello. And with the clarinet concerto, the opening theme is, I mean, it's so simple and it sticks with you so well. And you can kind of think of this opening theme also we can call ritornello as like the chorus in a song, right? It's something that comes back again and again and again throughout, for instance, the first movement. As it kind of comes back, it's also kind of as a good punctuation between moments and phrases for the soloist. They'll they'll come in and they'll have their, their moment, but then of course they need a break, especially wind instruments, and having this ritornello or returning theme is also a good also a good mental break and physical break for the soloist. There's this sort of sense of always returning home. Returnello is literally the same root as return. You get these little signposts, these sort of reminders of home, like you're not really home yet, but you sort of get there's, oh, yeah, that's the goal. That's where I'm going back to. And this is particularly poignant in the clarinet concerto, how Mozart uses the returns of themes uh, in both the orchestra and the soloist. And things are moving along. Concertos are getting bigger. They are getting longer, more in-depth. And we're seeing a few instruments really becoming kind of stars, if you will, the piano, the violin, and also the cello. And we go into the early part of the Romantic period, the early 1800s into 1900. This seems like the height of the concerto in the Romantic period where we have you know, big star soloists like Clara Schumann and Josef Joachim. And thinking of this being, you know, a big part of the development of the orchestra and this music, I mean, these become as big, sometimes bigger than these huge symphonies that the composers would also write. Well, what's interesting is the two main instruments that were used for the concerto were the violin and the piano. And what's they couldn't be more different in terms of their, you know, there's, you know, orchestra is one third violins and orchestra is zero percent pianos. And so you have and so both you have two completely different sets of challenges in each one of those kinds of concertos, sort of like how do you make one violin sound special when there's 30 of them backing them up? Um, and then the piano is just so different that the relationship becomes almost antagonistic, whereas the relationship between the violin is sort of like, well, you know, how do you differentiate that? So it's 
you know, there's such tremendous challenges, and composers wanted to rise to that challenge because it created maximum drama, which is what you want from a concerto. And up to this point, some of the aspects and the structure becomes standard with the concerto, and a composer who broke the mold in, in many different genres of classical music, Beethoven, did the same thing with these concertos. His violin concerto maybe follows a bit more with the previous ones, but his piano concertos, thinking also number four and five of his piano concertos, I mean, they start changing things big time. In a way, the, the fifth concerto sort of takes the classical concerto to a new level of engagement between the soloist and orchestra and brings it up to the level of this sort of heroic struggle, which is why it's called The Emperor. But it's in the fourth concerto that he really looks into the future about what, where the concerto was going to go in the late 19th century as uh, to not really so much being about this epic struggle so much as this kind of interesting coexistence where it's really all about the piano, but the orchestra creates this heightened space in which the soloist can exist. In the beginning of the fourth concerto, it's the piano that introduces the theme, which is which was never really done before. Right, because it was always we always hear these nice long introductions with the orchestra and the soloist then comes in. With the fourth, as you're saying, the piano comes right in and it's the theme. And if I didn't know any better when I just start listening to it, it's like, oh, this is a it's a piano sonata. Right, exactly. And and so he plays with our expectations. And of course, in the um concerts of Beethoven's time, it might have been a piano sonata because he would do the kind of concerts they would give. They would have solo piano pieces and orchestral pieces on the same concert. And so, um, and in fact, he did that, you know, on, on the same concert that the fourth was premiered, they had solo piano pieces. And so it was really a playing with the audience's expectations, a sort of blurring of lines of like, wait, wait, what, where's, how did, when did the orchestra come in? What's going on here? And it, and it created this new kind of drama and, you know, where the soloist takes the lead and the orchestra follows, which is which was unheard of. As opposed to the fifth, where there's a huge introductory chord and then the piano comes in being a virtuoso, but still the hierarchy is established. It's the orchestra and then the pianist is the the pianist is the soloist and the virtuoso, but not really the conductor like it is in the fourth. The soloist actually sort of becomes the conductor, which is or becomes the leader, becomes the sort of, you know, mind of the composer, which is a very different mindset, very different way of perspective from which to observe the drama of the conflict. It's all those things and bringing into even further into this time period with Sansons in 1872 with his cello concerto, it also gets rid of the introduction. I guess there's also a big chord, and then just right out of the gate, the cello is kind of explosive. But it sounds very different from the Emperor concerto opening, although it's kind of a similar idea of a big hit and then running off with a solo. Well, in a way, the Sansons sort of combines both. You've got the explosive first note, but then the cello comes in with something that 
in a way, it's a theme that could go either way. Is it a just is it an indulgent thing or is it actual theme? And we, as we find out, it's an actual theme. And because Sansons didn't make those distinctions quite as clear cut as, as Beethoven did, and and so in the Sansons, you get the cello driving the development, driving the, you know, not only just sort of following in the footsteps of the orchestra, but but driving every aspect of the musical argument of the piece from the beginning to the end. And it's also in what we call a cyclic form in which themes from the first movement reappear in the third movement, and there's no real pause between movements. And so what 19th century composers were trying to do is get is have music sound more like an organic stream of consciousness and not this first movement, second movement, you know, not this sort of formal classical uh, thing. And Sansons really, really succeeded in doing that in this concerto. And that's a big point where things are sometimes seamless. Movement one goes into two, goes into three. And it's not just, yeah, theme one, theme two. Okay, here's a little bit of, you know, exploring different keys. But also with Sansons, I understand he's treating the orchestra verse soloist a bit different than composers before, of course, like Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn. Here, it's it's almost, I think I've heard you say that it's antagonistic against each other. Well, yes, it's well, it's, I wouldn't say antagonistic. It's more like the orchestra is is, I mean, in the piano concertos, it became antagonistic. In the cello concerto, the cello can't really fight an orchestra. So the the orchestra kind of, you know, he cleverly uh, orchestrates it so that the cello can feel like it's in the foreground. I mean, in there's a, apparently in a letter, Sanson says that the cello concerto number one is about a storm. And you can certainly feel the idea that the first the first theme is very stormy, and the second movement you sort of feels like a sort of lull. You can hear the little raindrops fall in the in the strings as the as the little there's a nice little com- comforting melody, like oh we're getting a little eye in the storm. But then the storm comes back in the third movement, and then at the very end, turn to major, the sun comes out. It's a, it's a, and and the cello carries all of that and the, that whole drama so that. It's it's like the human, the cello is the human and the orchestra is the storm. And um, so in that sense, I suppose you could say it is antagonistic, but but it's there's there's certainly this very romantic idea of our being able to sort of project ourselves onto the soloist, even as the soloist is doing amazingly virtuosic things that we could never possibly do. And the big difference is now the orchestra is able to do more things, be more things, play more roles as opposed to the classical nice, light, you know, open, clean accompaniment. They're doing more driving, more pushing and pulling against the the soloist. Right, exactly. I mean, in a lot of these concertos, well, they add some really great colors, but it's also when you play them on just cello and piano, you lose less <laughs> than you would in some of these other classical concertos because it's, I mean, it's really all about the soloist. And looking at a composer like Johannes Brahms and his violin concerto, of course, we still have these cadenzas. But of course, now that these works become so huge and sometimes so tremendously difficult and the composer doesn't even play that instrument, Brahms, for instance, and his violin concerto, they're not really suited to write a cadenza for that instrument. So for his violin concerto, he asked violin virtuoso Josef Joachim to write the actual cadenza for the piece.
Yosef Joachim um, was one of the many virtuosos who were as important to the development of, of the concerto as composers were themselves, because when a composer writes, he has to write for, you know, if he's not a virtuoso himself, he has to write for someone else. And Joachim was tremendously influential in the 19th century. He was the person who could choose whether or not your concerto would be successful or not. By the time that he was around in the late 19th century, the the Beethoven concerto had fallen out of favor a bit, but then he revived it and wrote his own cadenzas for it and became a hit again and, and retained a popularity that remains to this day. And then when he inspired uh, Brahms to write a concerto for him, he advised Brahms on how to make the part more violinistic and, and he revised it heavily and he also wrote cadenzas for that work. As a result, you have concertos more as collaborations, almost as much as, say, operas between a composer and a librettist. You had the composer and the person writing for who put his own stamp on the work uh, that was unmistakable and and was as important as the comp- in some ways as the composer himself. Composers at this time definitely know, especially with concerts being big and and open to the to the public, and there's all these critics and everything. I mean, if you don't play the instrument for the concerto, you seek out better advice like that of of Joachim. And we can't leave the 19th century without mentioning, towards the very end, 1896, Dvorak and his cello concerto, because this one is obviously different there's i mean this one also to me just sounds so nostalgic but the opening when the cello comes in i mean i mean you're a cellist how do you describe it well in a way it's a throwback because you do have this huge orchestral introduction and it sounds very much like it could be a symphony and Dvorak is in no hurry in fact he's giving others there's a beautiful horn solo there's a beautiful oboe solo it's there's no, there's no there's, there's no particular hint that you know, the cello or anybody is going to be featured. And it's just this very, very dramatic introduction that's as portentous as in any of his symphonies, uh, really. And you get this anticipatory feeling in the strings and you don't know what's coming. And it's a cello. And it's a cello taking center stage. It's a cello being the hero, looking into the abyss, you know, on the, on the mountaintop. I don't think there's ever been such a dramatic way of setting up what a cello could be in all of music. It's so 19th century and it's so, it's beyond nostalgia. It's kind of grief and and love and preservation and sort of a last longing look at what was. And looking now into the 20th century, we can see this kind of big arc with the concerto. It's early beginnings. It gets popular, especially with Haydn and Mozart. And in the 19th century, these are huge, larger-than-life works. And as we go into the 20th century, we start to see less concertos. That doesn't mean we have less music for soloists and orchestra, but as this form, it starts to kind of fall out of fashion a bit. Yes. Well, the I think people expected more out of all symphonic music. There was sort of more um, pressure, especially as world events started to close in, like World War I and um, like advanced industrialization 
and the advent of recording, there was pressure on composers to write statements. And sometimes a composer would would work that into a concerto, like Elgar did in his cello concerto, which seems to, that was written at the end of World War One. that seems to be a statement upon that. But also, I think composers started to look beyond forms in general. I mean, not, and so they weren't confined to symphonies either. We have composers looking for other ways to juxtapose uh, the soloist with the orchestra. And one one example I can think of that also dates from World War One is The Lark Ascending by Rayfon Williams, in which he takes a poem by George Meredith uh, talking about a bird winging in flight and casts the violin in the role of the bird. You know, the juxtaposition of the soloist with this muted orchestra creates this magical effect that is certainly is an outgrowth of the concerto development that happened so far, but is, but it takes it to the next level. Like it's, you know, in Dvorak, it was all about the hero. And now the individual maybe isn't a hero. Maybe it's, maybe it's more like, you know, what the 20th century human condition, sort of like more like a sort of being looking around in confusion and despair and trying to hold on to hope. And you certainly hear all of that in Lark Ascending. And we still do have some concertos, and they kind of, they seem to be big standout ones from composers like Sibelius and his violin concerto. I love the kind of characteristic sound that Sibelius has, but also just kind of the uber romantic and just infatuous sounds of Rachmaninoff is second piano concerto that's really just right at 1900 but also his third those are some of the most popular works from Rachmaninoff in general but in a way I'm thankful that we have these kind of statement pieces that aren't concertos the lark ascending Rachmaninoff variations on a theme of Paganini also Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue for piano and orchestra in its own arrangement. We have these, they still, if you go to a concert, they will kind of sit in the same place on the program as a concerto. So it's still that moment for soloist and orchestra. But now we get a variety of of things. It's much more diverse in the sound and also in instruments. Well, the concerto went into lots of, well, music in general went into lots of different um, directions. But what is interesting about Rachmaninoff is that he held on to the 19th century form longer than most. And, you know, for a long time, this was considered sort of conservative or even reactionary. But I think now there's sort of a reassessment about what what Rachmaninoff was actually doing, which is that if you really listen to them, he was, you know, he was inserting his own persona through the piano soloist. And so, you know, he was as self-aware as anyone. And so the idea that he was creating these sort of almost cinematic landscapes of the soloist and orchestra creating these complex emotions in bringing the concerto into the modern era. First of all, it created something that was that the 20th century audience could relate to and could find uh, very accessible at at that time. And it was also a way of, of sort of exploring, as I said, different different kinds of emotions, more complex more complex dynamics uh, and certainly uh, unprecedented virtuosity as you know as Rachmaninoff was writing for his own incredible abilities and for bigger and bigger pianos and bigger and bigger orchestras and bigger and bigger halls and 
We've talked about a lot of concertos. There's concertos are basically every instrument in the orchestra, from viola to bass, cello, violin, clarinet, bassoon, horn, trumpet. Of course, trumpet very early on. The last instrument in the orchestra to get a concerto, the the tuba, the first tuba concerto, 1956 by Rafe Vaughn Williams. This is also one I consider a kind of hidden gem. This is shorter, and as we mentioned a while ago, a lot of brass concertos, they're shorter just because out of... Endurance. Yeah, the, the endurance and the, and the stamina is, is much less because, you know, there are much smaller muscles in your lips. So I think if you've not heard the Vaughn Williams tuba concerto, which every tuba player played it hundreds of times, I'm happy that I've played it with an orchestra. It's a tremendous experience going from the back of the stage to the very, very front of the stage. And that's a hidden gem. So on the show notes page, of course, we'll have lots of different recordings and videos of a lot of these concertos. This is one I think I, I would say, you know, if you've not heard it, check it out. Do you have a kind of hidden gem concerto? There's a concerto like Block Shlomo, which is a piece that I'm, I'm very fond of, in which the cello takes on a role, in this case, the role of King Solomon, sort of looking out at humanity and and you hear that it in its the cello creates it's it perhaps an even grander space than the Dvorak, an even more cosmic universe in this twenty minute work that creates this incredible journey. So the concerto, I and mean, we've explored a lot here from its early beginnings to its development and you know structure from the classical period to the huge romantics to kind of its evolution to the 20th century. I think we've covered a lot here. And I would also say, if you've never heard a work for a solo typewriter in orchestra, we'll have that on the show notes page as well. But thank you so much, James, for sharing your knowledge and experience here with the concerto. Oh, it's my pleasure. I can, I can talk for hours. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. If you want to hear some of the concertos we mentioned, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. ¶¶